Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Steve Vargo. I am Optometric Practice Management Consultant with IDOC, and welcome to the IDOC Focal Point Podcast. I'm here today with Matt de Blasi. Matt is president and co-founder of Abide and a frequent speaker on HIPAA compliance. Uh, like many great ideas, the concept behind Abide was started in a garage during a conversation between Matt and co-founder Chris Zumwalt. Uh, with the thought there must be an easier, more cost-effective way to manage mandatory HIPAA compliance programs for small and mid-sized medical practice uh, practices. And the goal was to create a, as Matt calls it, TurboTax for HIPAA-like software solution that allows medical practices to easily comply with HIPAA requirements uh, while not taking up valuable practice or, or personal time. And passionate about their mission to revolutionize HIPAA compliance, Matt and Chris launched Abide in December of 2016. And since then, Abide has quickly cemented itself as iCare's preferred HIPAA solution. And Abide has also finalized their IDOC partnership November of 2017, which I'm happy to say. So, uh, Matt, welcome. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate you having me. I'm excited to be here. Great, great. Yeah, so so let's jump right in. Um when it comes to HIPAA regulations and HIPAA requirements and manuals, this can become a, a very complex area. So is it a fair assessment to say that that many, uh, if not maybe even most offices, probably have some HIPAA violations in the practice, some obviously more egregious than others, uh, but I think some of that stems from a uh, some uncertainty around what actually constitutes HIPAA compliant. And a lot of times when I ask uh, OD about what they're doing to to stay compliant with HIPAA, you'll get sort of a shrug of the shoulders and they'll say, well, we're doing our best. And in all fairnesses, a lot of small businesses don't really have uh, compliance departments strictly devoted to this. And I think there's a sort of a lack of urgency to address this, perhaps feeling like the HIPAA police are more likely to, to bang on the doors of big hospitals or clinics as, a, as opposed to the smaller businesses or practices. So, and I know, Matt, we've talked about this before as well, but tell me a little bit about how, how is the industry changing in terms of enforcing HIPAA compliance and why should the smaller to mid-sized practice be taking this more serious? Yeah, Steve, I, I think you, you made a lot of great points there. And uh, first, what I'd like to do is, is really just define HIPAA compliance for those that are listening. I think there's a lot of confusion just around the definition or almost this mythical status of being quote unquote compliant. And so at Abide, we define being HIPAA compliant as a culture of compliance within an organization. Uh, but and then almost taking it a step further, we, we really focus on documentation around that culture of compliance. And so most practices, as you mentioned before, are doing what they can and they actually you know we see a, a culture of compliance uh, for most practices out there that would meet government requirements but where we see a, a gap is around that documentation and so that's why we started abide is to make that documentation process and pulling that together a lot easier um, but when you look at the overall trend that we've seen in the industry you mentioned it that the government um, really is not differentiating between large and small organizations. And an example of that um, is how HIPAA fits into the standard of care within meaningful use and, and now MIPS, um, or, I, or I, I guess I should say promoting interoperability, formerly known as meaningful use, right? Um, and, and so because there's a, a HIPAA compliance aspect 
to that program, it shows that, that it is a focus of the governments to tightly regulate that as, as time goes on. Um, the security risk analysis requirement, which is in each of those programs, is actually the leading cause for failed audits um, within meaningful use. Um, and, it, and so it is something that the government's going to continue to focus on, going to continue to regulate it. It's an opportunity for them um, to do the right thing in their mind, but then also on the back end kind of create an additional revenue stream by, by actually levying fines. And, and really there's been a, a large uptick in, in overall regulation and, and fines levied just over the last couple of years. And so we've also seen a, a pretty interesting uh, trend in, Rather than the OCR, the Office for Civil Rights, uh, regulating HIPAA and levying these fines, we've actually seen states pick up the slack. Um, so state attorney generals are, are levying fines. Just really in the last two weeks, we've seen Massachusetts and New York levy um, fines of over, over a couple hundred thousand dollars each rather than the Office for Civil Rights. And we feel like there are a number of reasons for that. Um, one seems to be the downsizing of, of regulatory committees with the new administration, um, but it doesn't mean there's going to be a lack of regulation. And so they are passing it off to the states, which is, is pretty interesting. Now, when it comes to small practices, you know, we do hear it a lot. Why would they worry about us? Or, or you know, don't they have bigger fish to fry? Um, and, and while the answer may be yes, um, it doesn't take many records uh, or, or many patients to be affected by a data breach uh, to really uh, pique the attention of the government when it comes to regulation. And so small practices need to understand that there is a connection between HIPAA and cybersecurity, and nobody is immune to a data breach. I mean, we've seen Facebook recently and Instagram and Legacy Health, and the list goes on and on and on when it comes to data breaches. And, and so um, even if it is a small organization, if you're using practice management or EHR solutions that are obviously on computers, which are connected to the internet, that makes that practice way more vulnerable to someone who might have malicious intent to gain access to protected health information stored in, in those are uh, on those platforms. And so that information like names and dates of birth, social security numbers is 10 times more valuable to someone that, that has malicious intent um, than any credit card information. And, and so many practices, you know, focus on uh, the security around PCI, but uh, tend to um, maybe overlook HIPAA and the cybersecurity aspect um, within their practice. And, and, uh, they're slowly coming around and understanding uh, the connection uh, between HIPAA and cybersecurity, as well as the, the valuable information that they store on those platforms. Yeah, yeah. It's, you, know, you mentioned data breach a few times. I remember a, an OD called once, and it was, it was sort of this oops moment where they realized that their office had faxed a patient's medical records to the wrong number. So that may be a, a smaller example of, of a data breach, but nonetheless, an area where uh, HIPAA would become a concern even without somebody having to come, as I said before, knock on your doors to find out if you're HIPAA compliant, if you're a HIPAA compliant office. But could I ask you to expand on that a little bit as, as far as data breach? What, what is a data breach and, and what do you do after? 
Sure. Um, so, so data breaches, we like to define it as intentional or unintentional release of secure or private or confidential information to an untrusted environment, um, a person or, or maybe even an entity. Um, and so you need to understand that this doesn't necessarily mean that there was malicious intent kind of to, to uh, go back to the example that we, that you were using before with faxing information um, to the wrong source. And, and so that would constitute as a data breach. Um, and so we actually see statistically the majority of data breaches are considered accidental. And so when you have identifiable health data um, that's used by a, a HIPAA-covered entity or even a business associate, which I know we're going to dive into to what those are and, and how they uh, fit into the HIPAA compliance uh, landscape. But we have the, that information in relation to healthcare services or payments. It becomes protected health information. So PHI or EPHI, which stands for Electronic Protected Health Information, is any identifiable health data that can be created, stored, given, or, or even received. Um, so the focus here should be on the words identifiable health data. So identifiable health data is simply any information that can be used to identify a patient. For example, patient demographic information, past medical history information, diagnoses, lab tests, insurance information, or really any other information that's sensitive, confidential, or identifying to patients, including email addresses or fax numbers. And so a myth we often hear from those within the medical industry is that the information for it to be considered protected, there must be a two-way identifier. And so we want to just make sure that those out there understand that this is incorrect. And so really all it takes is one identifier to be accessed by an unauthorized person or a company, and you have yourself a breach. Um, so over the years, the government has categorized PHI into 18 different identifiers. I'm not going to go through them all. Um, but I did mention some earlier, and this means that if any health data has one or more of these 18 identifiers, it must be protected according to the HIPAA regulations and standards. And so keep in mind that a data breach has occurred if someone even within the practices access PHI for any other reason um, rather than, than treatment, payment, or research purposes. And really what I'm getting at, we hear a lot um, of questions around snooping, you know, had a patient or I'm sorry, I had an employee or a staff member look up a patient's record um, because they thought they knew them in the past, or maybe it was a girlfriend or an ex-girlfriend or, or someone that they have a relationship with that's not focused on treatment, payment, or research purposes. That is actually considered a breach. We've even seen criminal penalties levied uh, for, for circumstances that carry uh, a similar type environment that I just described. So at Abide, you know, we, we focus on providing guidance to practices on how they can avoid data breaches and being proactive to avoid those. I think that's the key. Um, so if a data breach does occur in your practice, uh, it is essential to act quickly. Um, we do recommend to be transparent. Um, the self-reporting aspect of this is vital. Um, and so there are some immediate steps that are essential to limiting really the overall risk for a practice in the case of a data breach um, and, and if it occurs. We recommend first and foremost conduct an internal investigation or, or really a risk analysis and, and document the why and the how, 
right? How did this event occur? Why did it occur? Maybe what are some of the things that they're going to be doing um, as part of a corrective action plan to proactively address those areas within the practice? Um, we also recommend a written notification to patients uh, as soon as possible. How quickly um, that a practice must do this is, is really determined by the state law. And, and again, this is really peeling back the layers uh, of the onion when it comes to HIPAA, but um, each state could potentially have different standards when it comes to uh, the, the notification process to patients in the case of a data breach. Um, and then obviously they want to make sure that they self-report it to the Office for Civil Rights. So there is a website um, and a tool that can be used to report that information um, to the OCR. Depending on the circumstance, depending on the data breach and, and how it occurred or, or uh, how many patients were affected, there are some other potential steps that, that might need to be taken. Um, if more than 500 patients are affected, a press release is required as part of the notification process. Um, the, a practice may need to put a disclaimer on the website that a data breach occurred um, and, and uh, that would really carry the circumstance if there was uh, no current contact information for 10 or more affected individuals. Um, and then depending again on the scope of the breach, providing credit monitoring um, for a predetermined amount of time or even identity monitoring uh, for patients that were affected would likely go over well um, and hopefully keep those patients that were affected loyal to the practice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that most data breaches are accidental. Uh, where do you draw the line between something that's an accidental release of information, but not necessarily a breach? And I know this concern comes up from time to time. Obviously, in, in, in an optometric practice and probably a, a lot of healthcare practices, it's not uncommon for charts to occasionally be visible, for conversations to occasionally be overheard. Um, would these situations constitute HIPAA violations? Yeah, it's a great question. We get we get that uh, asked to our team of experts a, a lot, and and the way that we like to answer that is, what every practice, every doctor, every staff member at all times needs to keep at the forefront is the minimum information necessary rule. And so this minimum information necessary rule is exactly as it states. Um, it at all times. Only the minimum information necessary should be used to convey or to communicate with patients or maybe staff members or, or providers. Um, for example, when talking about patients within a practice, if there's no reason to use last names, then don't use last names. Um, whether you're calling a patient back um, to go through their exam or, or maybe the pre-testing process, um, first name, uh, first a letter of the last name is always a, a great uh, uh, process to keep in mind. Um, when we hear about voicemails, and, and we get that question a lot, what can we say on voicemail? Same thing goes. Um, minimum information necessary to convey the point. Um, so you can state the practice name. Uh, we recommend not stating the the uh, diagnoses or the test results or what type of appointment the patient has, uh, but you can state um, as a reminder, 
the date of the employee, uh, the appointment, the time, and obviously, as I mentioned before, the practice name, uh, and, and, and then texting. We get that question a lot as well. What can we provide in text messages? Um, we do recommend using a secure application uh, for texting, but the same thing would apply for texting as it does for voicemails. You just don't want to um, provide any uh, uh, protected health information that may give away diagnoses or test results. So again, confirming uh, dates and times of appointments is, is, is just fine. Um, accessibility to charts or even monitors if you're using a practice management EHR system um, is something that we see uh, a lot of practices uh, get lackadaisical on. Um, and, and so a lot of the areas within uh, optometry practice um, are exposed to patients. Um, a lot of laptops in the dispensary area um, or, or the fitting area or, or maybe the lab is accessible um, or even front desks now, which is the different uh, uh, designs for practices, are have a, a 360 type approach, where it's maybe in the in the middle of the office. And so, just being aware of what information um, is being uh, pulled up on those uh, computers, um, and and we always recommend uh, using a, a, a privacy screen if that information um, can be seen by someone who is not. Um, authorized by the practice, likely an employee or provider. And uh, another area that we, you know, see uh, some of those accidental disclosures um, is around accessibility of the practice. So who has access to different areas, um, where are the patients being led, or, or what type of uh, supervision do they have when they do come into your practice, or all, all things that um, you know, business uh, business managers or office managers or doctors want to be aware of when securing their protected health information. Okay, great. Yeah, and that's one of the challenges is there's just so many communication methods these days. And you talk about texting and email and staying on top of everything, and then also keeping the staff uh, informed of HIPAA. We hired. I guess I shouldn't, but I guess I can laugh about this now a little bit so many years later, but I remember back when I was practicing, we hired somebody new, and I think it was her second day. In all fairness, HIPAA was relatively new, but we hadn't given her any training on HIPAA, and I, and I was in the exam room, and I heard some yelling up front, and finally went up to see what it was, and it turned out this new employee was trying to help an elderly patient with his paperwork and was yelling out do you have diabetes? Do you have high <laughs> blood pressure? So definitely a, a failure on our part, but it, it does um, make you think about how many employees you have and the ones that come and go and always needing to, to stay on top of that, never assuming that people naturally know what they, what they can and can't do. Um, Matt, can you tell us a little bit about risk analysis? That comes up a lot. What is that and, and how often does that need to be updated? Sure. Uh, so the risk analysis is a requirement um, that you can find within the security rule. Uh, so the government, when uh, enacting HIPAA in 1996, came up with two rules later on, the privacy and the security rule. Now the security rule states that the risk analysis is the first step to HIPAA compliance. Um, and so those that are listening that are participating in, in MIPS um, or have participated in meaningful use, uh, probably heard of the risk analysis requirement before. It's a core measure that's within both of those programs. Um, and so they need to understand that this risk analysis is a self-evaluation uh, 
of their practice. Um, the risk analysis, as I mentioned before, is for all covered entities, so not just those participating in meaningful use and in MIPS. And so this self-evaluation is where they're going to identify within their practices the safeguards that they have in place. Um, so maybe they have obviously locks on doors and um, they have a security alarm system and they have passwords for their computers and, and maybe they use antivirus and they're backing up appropriately. Those are some elementary examples. Um, but they also need to identify areas uh, where they don't have safeguards in place or maybe they don't have safeguards that meet best practices when it comes to HIPAA compliance. And so it's about analyzing that risk within physical, technical, and administrative areas in their practice. And within this risk analysis, they are to also um, then put together a risk management plan based on the outcome of that risk analysis. So not only identify areas of vulnerability, but then also show a plan to reduce or mitigate those areas. For example, if you understand or realize, you know, well, we haven't updated our antivirus in two years, or maybe we don't even have an antivirus package. Obviously, the government at that point wants you to go ahead and, and implement that solution to mitigate the overall risk of protected health information being compromised. Um, the risk analysis requirement um, is, is mandatory at a minimum once per year, um, but we recommend um, that a practice, if they're doing and, and completing the risk analysis on their own, uh, to update it quarterly. Um, that's going to limit the, the overall time spent by an office manager or business manager or practice owner or provider pulling this together. And, and unfortunately, the risk analysis is probably the biggest stumbling block that we see for most practices out there, um, especially the small to mid-sized practices. And, and it's because of the reason you mentioned before, Steve, um, most small practices don't have a CIO or a CTO or a compliance team that specializes in HIPAA. And so to identify areas of vulnerability, areas where a solution isn't necessarily in place, or maybe a best solution isn't in place is, is nearly impossible. Because for most practices, if they knew there was an area of vulnerability, they probably would have implemented a solution by now. And so this is a, a problem that we've seen for a lot of the practices, especially going through meaningful use and in, in, in MIPS with the risk, with the risk analysis requirement. Um, and so it's something that <clears throat> We strive to make easy at Abide and, and to simplify, um, but ultimately is a very time-consuming and intensive process. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, something else that will come up a lot is the topic of business associates, and, and my understanding is interact, you know, one healthcare professional, uh, two doctors, um, communicating together, not necessarily something that would require a business associate agreement, but there's other outside third parties in many cases that, that healthcare professionals do have to interact with where they could come across um, protected and private healthcare information. So can you talk a little bit about that? Business associates, who are they? And, and is an, when is an agreement necessary and, and how often do these agreements need to be signed? Sure. This is the subject area that we receive the most questions about by far. Um, and it is confusing. Again, as an office manager or business manager, trying to manage these on your own um, and identify who they are and, and how often they need to be signed and the details behind them is, is, uh, is, is, is pretty uh, intensive. And so we define a business associate as a person or entity that performs certain functions or activities that involve the use or disclosure of protected health information on behalf of or provide services to a covered entity 
And so I know to those who are listening are probably asking, well, what in the world does that mean for our practice? So we recommend thinking of a business associate as any person or company not typically covered under HIPAA that comes into contact with or might come into contact with protected health information. And so a few common examples of business associates that we see um, are going to be an IT company or maybe an attorney whose, uh, attorney whose legal services involve access to protected health information, um, potentially a, a document shredding company if your practice uses one, um, a practice management or EHR vendor because they're providing remote support and may have access or potential access to protected health information. Um, if IDOC is providing consulting services uh, within the organization and may come into contact with patient or protected health information, they would be a business associate. So those are just a few of the examples. Um, the key factor that you want to look for for determining who is and who is not a business associate, again, is if they come into contact or might come into contact with protected health information. And so the privacy requires all covered entities, which would include all practices, to obtain satisfactory assurances from its business associates that the business associate will appropriately safeguard protected health information they receive or they create on behalf of the covered entity. So they also require these contracts or agreements to be signed between the covered entity and the business associate, which outlines the responsibility um, that the business associate has to protect the sensitive information stored by the covered entity. And so even though it may not be the fault of the practice, if there's ever a data breach, it may be caused by a business associate, without having a business associate in place, the covered entity wears the responsibility and has the liability of imposing fines or violations that can be handed down by the government. We actually just saw in last year in 2017, OCR fined a doctor $31,000 after their document storage company tossed paper medical records of thousands of their patients into an unlocked dumpster, and neither the practice nor the business associate could provide a signed agreement. And so that practice, even though they did everything in their power to secure their information, was held liable for that $31,000 fine. And so we see the frequency of reviewing or, or re-signing business associates. Um, it really comes down to the language of the agreement itself. So many agreements state, you know, the contract works into perpetuity unless one party provides written notice of termination. Um, others actually have a time frame. So maybe a project completion date or a specific date in mind that will end the agreement. Um, either way, um, we recommend that a covered entity at minimum reviews those agreements once a year to see if maybe they need to um, get a new signature. Uh, maybe the contact person for the business associate is no longer there. Um, or maybe they need to provide a, a whole new agreement depending on the language that they originally had. Got it. Yes, thank you. And um, lastly, Matt, I, one thing I've really come to realize is with, with HIPAA is many of the things that people have pertaining to HIPAA or the things that they request are merely pieces of a, of a much bigger puzzle. Uh, they office might have a, a compliance manual from the AOA and a, a training DVD that they ordered online. Uh, tell me a little bit about how Abide works with practices in a more all-encompassing manner. 
Yeah, it's a great point. It's funny that you used, uh, you know, the, the puzzle aspect because uh, when we work with practices and we try to describe what that culture of compliance looks like within their organization, we actually use the visual of a, of a puzzle uh, with different pieces making up that culture of compliance within an organization. And without one piece, you don't have the full picture. Um, and so <clears throat> we look at, at HIPAA compliance through the lens of an auditor. Uh, where it does consist of a few different moving parts all working together. Um, and so you have the risk analysis aspect. You have the, the documented policies and procedures that need to be specific to an organization, uh, required HIPAA training, the business associate agreements, um, making sure that all this information is as up-to-date as possible or, or getting confidentiality agreements signed. Um, and, and so there's a lot that goes into it. And so what we've done at Abide is we've streamlined this process. Um, from one centralized dashboard, one application, um, a doctor, office manager, or business manager does not need to be an expert in HIPAA compliance, but can easily manage all these different areas without taking much time away from their normal daily activities. We like to say it's really about five or 15 minutes a month using our application, and they can have peace of mind that they do have a documented culture of compliance that they could provide the government if there ever was an investigation. Um, and, and so uh, we, we, we love saving time for practices. We understand that, you know, a lot of the practices out there are getting pulled in a million different direction and, and time is of the most valuable asset. And so we love giving practices uh, time back uh, to focus on patient care and profitability while not being consumed by, by daily HIPAA responsibilities. Great. Well, Matt, on the, on the topic of time, I'm going to thank you for your time. And, and I will say on a, on a personal note, because I know when we were talking before, you've, um, you've actually, I've seen a demo for Abide. And, and that's, I remember walking away, that was the, the top of mind. The most impressive feature was that how simple it was. And I started off this by saying how complex HIPAA is. And it's just, I, it was, a, I was impressed that you guys were able to create something that simplified something that complex and, and we're able to save that much time uh, for the typical OD who uses it. So like I said, uh, on the topic of time, I'm, thank you again for your time. This has been very insightful. Um, as an IDOC vendor, if you're an IDOC member, obviously you could just reach out to us directly, but where can someone who's maybe not an IDOC member find out more about your company? Yeah, sure. Um, always can visit our website, uh, www.abide.com, and that's with a Y, so A-B-Y-D-E.com. Uh, we have some more information that you can take a look at there, um, and also a, a contact area on that webpage that you can reach out to us. Um, you can always email me. Um, I'm always available to talk and, and provide any type of information. Uh, uh, information that I can or assistance that I can around really any questions when it comes to HIPAA compliance. That's what we want to be known as an educational resource. It's what we, we take pride in. And so my email address is M de Blasi, M is in Matt, D is in David, I, B is in Boston, L, A, S is in Sam, I, at continualcompliance.com. Um, and our phone number, and you can reach our team of experts at any time, is 1-800-594- 0883. Great. Thank you again, Matt. And uh, we wish you continued success with Abide. Thanks, Steve, for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You too.